Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on religious liberty, end time events, and current issues. We have a very special guest here today. We have Matthew Preby. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, Matthew, can you tell us a little bit about your ministry? Sure. My father is Dennis Preby, and uh, he has been with Amazing Facts since 1985. He was invited there by Joe Cruz. And uh, over the last uh, 35 years, he has traveled across North America holding seminars in churches, uh, basically Adventist churches and Adventist schools, you know, usually weekend meetings, sometimes a week, and uh, basically revival type meetings where he is looking at righteousness by faith and uh, what is the real gospel that Adventists stand for and what is it to be a Seventh-day Adventist, what makes us special and different from everybody else. And uh, how can we be uh, living the life that will make us a part of what the final events will find and will turn out to be? And so he's been doing that with uh, my mom for you know, over 30 years at this point. And I started out with him basically just traveling with him as a kid. And then in uh, 1999, I started speaking with him on a limited basis. And then about uh, 12 years ago, uh, when I got married, um, I we began to do a lot more with the ministry in terms of uh, speaking so that now at all of our uh, uh, seminars, he will hold uh, the righteousness by faith uh, part of the meetings. And then I will have a creation science meeting, uh, something dealing with nature and animals that uh, illuminates our, uh, what we have been given by God in the animal world. And so uh, for the last 10 years now, I've kind of taken over his uh, technical areas where I kind of run his website and my website and, and his YouTube channel and mine. So I deal with the uh, kind of the background stuff as well as dealing with uh, the creation science presentations. Now, your father, mother, and yourself have been traveling around the nation holding the line of distinct Adventism, warning about the evangelical influence regards to the gospel and righteous by faith. We have a distinct Adventist perspective on the gospel and righteous by faith. But do you see it also penetrating to our prophetic message today? Unfortunately, yes. Um, since the early 80s, um, Dennis has been focusing mostly on the gospel issues, how we have a distinctive Adventist gospel that no one else has, and how it has been diluted or replaced by an evangelical gospel. And when we get down to it, basically, evangelicals believe in very different things than we do. Evangelicals believe in original sin. You're a born sinner, you're condemned at birth, and you have to be justified from without by God's just saying you're justified. Where we as Adventists believe that we are sinners by choice. When you sin, then you are condemned, but not because you were just born. Because of this original sin doctrine, therefore Christ can't be like us, according to evangelicals, and therefore he had to be like Adam before the fall, and so therefore he's not at all an example for us. And he had, therefore we have no example of how anyone uh, could ever overcome sin. But as an Adventist, we have always believed that Christ had a nature like we do. Therefore, we have the ability to overcome sin through his power because Christ did it for us, and we can now use his power in our own lives just as he did. And because of all this, we now have a gospel that is, has power and can overcome sin. Evangelicals have no power. They say you need to keep the law, but they have no power to do so. And therefore, their belief system has no final atonement. It has nothing to do with a, a sanctuary um, message that means anything in the heavenly sanctuary. 
and there will be no close of probation for an evangelical because they have no ending of sin until the second coming. Whereas an Adventist uh, has that um, gospel which allows all of those things. The sanctuary really matters because there is an investigative judgment and the final atonement, the final generation really does mean something special for our end time events. And there will be a close of probation because there will be a time when all people have finally made their choices to sin or not sin according to what they want to do at the end of time. And so this has been the two distinct Gospels, the Adventist Gospel and the Evangelical Gospel. And the Evangelical Gospel has come in a lot into liberal Adventism for a long time. We see this back in the 70s and 80s. A lot of liberals were believing this sort of a gospel. But what is now kind of distressing is that many conservative Adventists are now teaching many of these same things. They may not have the entire package, but they have elements of it. And so you can now go to many conservative Adventist speakers and presenters, and you can hear many elements of the evangelical gospel intermixed with the Adventist gospel to various more or less degrees. And so this is also, unfortunately, because of this, changing our end time events idea as well. Instead of having a distinctive idea of what would be the end events, like Adventists have always had, we're starting to now copy and mimic a lot of the ideas of evangelicals, because all of this is kind of coming in together in various forms. And therefore, we're no longer warning what we used to warn about. And we're shifting our attention to other things than we used to have as our main ways that the end time events would happen. So we're seeing a lot of confusion amongst conservative Adventism, where there used to be agreement on how end time prophetic message would be uh, spelled out. Why do you think conservative Adventism is so vulnerable to evangelical Christianity influence? Yeah, that's really the good question of, of how this happened. And this is something that you have to go back a long ways to really get the full picture, because this didn't happen overnight. You have to go back to the 50s, and that's 70 years ago now. So that's, you know, before my time, before most of our times at this point. And so it's we have to look and see what the history of this change took place. I had an opportunity in my younger years to meet a lot of the first-person perspective people who lived during that time period, and they told me their stories, and they related to how this happened and how they saw it in, in, in person. And so I, I had a really um, wonderful opportunity to do that, which most of those people have now um, and, uh, died, and we're no longer able to talk to them anymore. But when you look at the history and what they said of what happened, it's very distressing what really took place during those years. Back during the 50s, we were considered the odd church with our beliefs. And so we were called a cult. We were called non-Christian. We were considered one of the really strange belief systems that just weren't part of the group. And so um, a lot of Adventist leaders got sick of that, and they decided that they were going to try to do something to improve our image and try to work with the uh, ones out there who were apparently the ones that were deciding who was a cult and who wasn't. And so to do that, they met with uh, leaders such as Donald Barnhouse and Walter Martin. And we had discussions with them, long discussions of what we believed and what they believed and what they thought we should believe and that sort of thing. And by the end of this process, in order to be more acceptable to their ideas, we began to say a lot of things we had never said before. We began to change our ideas in terms of what we were publicly 
claiming as our core teachings, how we related to inspiration, the spirit of prophecy, how we related to the gospel, how we related to 1844 and, and the sanctuary. And so we did a lot of things that um, began this road of compromise. At the end of this process, by the time these discussions were done, we had begun to change, but they had not. And they were at the point basically where they always were. They stopped calling us a cult. They put us in a special category of maybe we're Christian, maybe not. And um, they kind of eased up on the uh, direct anger at us as being just completely anti-Christian. But at the same time, they weren't changing anything that they believed. And uh, Donald Barnhouse once famously said that uh, I curse the seventh day Sabbath. And so, you know, there was really nothing gained on our part by these discussions. We really didn't do any witnessing, did any good. So it was very, very disappointing what happened during those years. And so that kind of was the beginning of the liberal change in Adventism, this sort of uh, weakening of what our core ideas were that began in the 50s and continued very strongly in the 70s and 80s, especially when Desmond Ford became the most prominent proponent of these sorts of ideas. Now, he wasn't a liberal himself. He was actually very conservative in his lifestyle, in his belief in uh, a lot of the different cores of Adventism. He was very conservative. And I know that for the fact because he was basically across the hallway from my dad at PUC. They basically had, uh, you know, uh, the same office area and knew each other very well. And I mean, I met him as a kid. I never had a chance to uh, talk to him. I was too young at that point. But uh, he was very smooth and he always had a conservative outlook on everything with diet and lifestyle and all that sort of thing. So there's a lot of revisionist history, which makes him out to be this flaming liberal who is trying to tear everything down, um, all the standards. And that's totally not true. Um, he was a conservative uh, evangelical. But he was a pure 100% evangelical. He had gone to the evangelical schools and, and, and learned from evangelical teachers. And every part of his gospel was consistently 100% evangelical. And so he came to America, he came to PUC, and uh, he basically lit the fuse on the bomb that blew up uh, what we had always considered stable Adventism. And from that point forward, he was attacking the sanctuary uh, meaning of it. He was attacking 1844 as having any relevance. Um, he totally had a 100% different gospel than Adventism had ever taught before. And so this created a lot of anger and friction and uncertainty and confusion. And everybody was uh, really, really focused on this for quite a few years in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, by the time that it was finally dealt with, um, a number of actions were taken against Desmond Ford, um, and he was removed from teaching in his positions and removed from his uh, ability to uh, be a regular Adventist presenter. Um, but the, what was interesting was they completely condemned his position on the sanctuary and on 1844, but they left his gospel untouched. They didn't challenge what he believed in his core gospel issues. And because of leaving that unchallenged, what he believed in his gospel was allowed to continue to permeate and influence an entire generation of Adventism, where we've kind of gone to the point where we don't really believe that uh, he was right on 1844, but we, he had some good points about whether or not we could overcome sin or not. That was the kind of influence that he continued to have even after he was out of Adventism proper. 
And so that was in the 80s, and his gospel continued to have influence amongst mostly liberal Adventists at that point, most of the people who didn't want to keep Sabbath properly, who wanted to do whatever they want and go to movies and listen to rock music and whatever. You know, I mean, all the different people who we would consider a liberal Adventist today were very happy to adopt his ideas, even though he himself didn't believe in all of those things at all. And that really kind of became the hallmark of the liberal Adventist movement from that point forward, is what he believed about uh, whether or not you could overcome sin or not, because it just didn't matter um, with that gospel. But now, in the 90s and 2000s, it began to shift and began to permeate into conservative Adventism. And this is where we, as uh, my family, were mostly speaking at. We weren't speaking at liberal churches. We were speaking at, by and large, conservative or neutral churches, that sort of thing. And we began to see this coming in more and more in these years. And so it's hard to pinpoint at this point when this change took place, because it was so gradual, but it began to permeate as well into the acceptance of political issues of evangelicals as well, where we were kind of starting to accept um, uh, their ideas of how they view America and the and world and society and all that sort of thing, as we began to adopt the gospel evangelical is issues, we also began to adopt the uh, acceptance of their political ideas and their moral ideas as well. And so right now I'm going to read from a quotation because we haven't done that yet. And I really do want to get to the spirit of prophecy because she says so many useful things that really show where we are in history. And for this one, I'm going to read from uh, Great Controversy, um, page 443, uh, actually this is uh, 444. The wide diversity of belief in the Protestant churches is regarded by many as decisive proof that no effort to secure a forced uniformity can ever be made. But there has been for years in churches of the Protestant faith a strong and growing sentiment in favor of a union based upon common points of doctrine. To secure such a union, the discussion of subjects upon which all were not agreed, however important they might be from a Bible standpoint, must necessarily be waived. And so now we see that so much in the evangelical world, the Protestant churches, because they have given up virtually everything distinctive in order to ally with Rome and the papacy on a lot of different issues, where before they stood firm for various ideas that they considered important to them. Now they've kind of put those aside in order to politically ally themselves with Catholics especially here in America, where they want to influence moral issues. So they will work together with a Catholic, even though their gospel is 100% different from the Catholic gospel, but they will set that aside. And now we're seeing that happening to us. We as Adventists are starting to put aside our doctrinal differences from evangelicals in order to unite on common points of doctrine, where we are against the same things. We're against the same lack of morality in society. We're against the same sort of uh, forcing of evolution on everybody. We're against these sorts of things which evangelicals are very much against and we are very much against. So let's work together. And so we're starting to set aside our doctrinal differences as well in order to be able to uh, solve the problems of society. And so this is a huge problem because as soon as we do this, as soon as we do this, we're immediately losing sight of what made us special as Adventism. And we now are taking into them ourselves, not only their political ideas, but their theology as well. There's another issue here that also ties into this, 
we as Adventists are huge proponents of religious liberty. We have been from day one. Um, A.T. Jones and the ones who fought the original Sunday law legislation and back in the 1890s, the guys were working hard to keep our liberties. And so we have put out fantastic material on religious freedom and what it means to be a true advocate of religious liberty. And so this is something that we as Adventists really stand for in a good way. Now, what has happened in the last 25, 30 years, evangelicals have decided that they are also in favor of religious liberty. And they are really pushing hard for it. And we hear these all, all the time from various leaders in the evangelical and political world in our country, which are talking about religious liberty is, is one of our core values and all this sort of thing. And it sounds great. And it's like we as Adventists go, well, yeah, we're, we want the same thing. So let's work together because we're all working for religious liberty. There's a really unfortunate issue here because the religious liberty of the evangelical Christians, and we could go into this farther, but I'm not going to spend too much time on that, is really not true religious liberty. It is really a religious liberty for me, not for you, but for me. And so this becomes a major difference with what true religious liberty is really all about. Religious liberty for all is what we have always advocated, where even minorities, no matter how hateful or weird or bizarre their beliefs, are protected in America. And the religious liberty of evangelicals is about religious liberty for Christianity. And they can, you know, expand that a little bit to Judaism because that's, you know, one of their political allies right now. And it definitely is allowed for Catholicism, even though they're totally different than, you know, what true Christianity stands for. But uh, all of these are kind of embraced as the version of religious liberty that we will tolerate. But minorities, religions of people that uh, we don't really like, um, definitely religions of our enemies like the Muslims or whoever are definitely not part of what they want for religious liberty. And so a lot of what you see right now, especially in our political world, as religious liberty is not true religious liberty. And that's something that we really have to kind of keep our eyes open a lot more than we're doing and not just blindly accept whatever somebody says as religious liberty because that's a catchphrase. It doesn't mean anything unless it's expanded to mean religious liberty for all. Because in the end, at the end time, when there's a final tiny remnant of people who are being persecuted by the majority, their majority is still going to be saying we're doing this for religious reasons and it's going to be religious liberty for us and not for you because you're the enemy of us. So religious liberty is one of those uh, really difficult areas that we really need to pay much more attention to what is going on underneath the surface and not blindly accept just the term religious liberty and therefore be on their side. And so this has been part of what has allowed the conservative Adventism to become corrupted by the evangelical um, conservatism of the, these sorts of things as well. There is one statement we need to look at. This is in uh, Five Testimonies, uh, page 463. The work which the church has failed to do in a time of peace and prosperity, she will have to do in a terrible crisis under most discouraging, forbidding circumstances. The warnings that worldly conformity has silenced or withheld must be given under the fiercest opposition from enemies of the faith. And at that time, the superficial conservative class whose influence has steadily retarded the progress of the work will renounce the faith and take their stand with its avowed enemies toward whom their sympathies have long been tending. 
These apostates will then manifest the most bitter enmity, doing all in their power to oppress and malign their former brethren, and to excite indignation against them. This day is just before us. I think that's an incredible statement, because that right now we see this happening. A superficial conservative class is taking place in Adventism right now, where they believe in the Sabbath, they believe in dressing modestly, they believe in not listening to um, terrible things on TV and going to movies and this sort of thing, and they want to have a moral society and that sort of thing, but it's superficial. It's not deep. It doesn't go deep enough to really have a basis in the deep gospel that we need to be founded on. And they are going to leave us because they're getting swept away into this conservative class of evangelicals. And this is, I think, a real danger for conservative Adventism right now. It's losing its way. It's becoming a superficial conservative class more often than we want to admit. And so I think this is a real problem our eyes need to be open to at this point. Now, a person of color that was my friend said about conservative Adventism currently that it's turned to white nationalism. How do you respond to that? Yeah, um, this is something that we see a lot of, um, you know, claims and counterclaims. And this is something that we really need to be careful what we say and at the same time be aware of what is going on. Because um, I've been in every kind of church. I mean, we we have spoken honestly. I mean, my father uh, and I have been traveling to these churches we're, we're at a different church every weekend, usually for six to eight months of the year. So we have seen every version of Adventism you can possibly have. I mean, we don't go to the, like I said, we don't go to the super liberal churches because they don't invite us. But I mean, you know, everything else is fair game. And we've been in every kind of church in terms of the uh, the race of the church. We've been in every variety of black church. We've been in every variety of Latino church. Um, we've been to European type churches. We've been to Russian churches, Romanian churches. Um, we've been to a variety of different Asian churches and Filipino and, and Japanese. And I mean, you know, you name it, we've probably been there. We've gone down to and spoken to New Zealand and Australia. And so we've had, you know, a, a British tradition type church there. So it's like, you know, I mean, there's there's just endless variety of people out there and every mixture in between in, in, in churches. So it's like we've seen almost every combination you can ask for. And honestly, in 30 years of doing this, I have never met anyone who I felt was a racist. I have never felt any felt that uh, oppression because I I see it in the world. I've met it in a worldly situations where I've seen racism, I've seen prejudice, and I've seen things that are just hateful. And so I haven't seen that in Adventism in the places I've gone. And so it's like it's not a direct racism in the people I meet, but at the same time we're now linking up in the conservative Adventist world with a lot of the political. Uh, machinery, which is, is becoming more racist. And because of that, I think we're letting our guard drop. I think we're kind of not as um, aware of how dangerous this is as we should be. And so something I'm seeing now that I never used to see before is not so much blatant racism, um, where it's a directed against anybody per se and anything being said hateful, but a kind of denial that there is racism, a kind of 
uh, uh, saying, you know, it's not as big a problem as being made out, or it's not as much of a issue as, as there's really no white nationalism left in America. That's, that's, I've been gone for a hundred years. You know, that's sort of, I'm hearing those type of comments where it's not a direct uh, attack that I feel is racist, but at the same time, it's a pretending it doesn't exist. And so, you know, that is distressing in and of itself because it obviously exists. It obviously is taking place and it is in many cases, you know, coming out showing how bad it has been in places that we thought it had gone away. Um, I've grown up in California. Uh, I'm a California native my whole life. And so I grew up colorblind. I really didn't see race because we haven't had that issue in California much at all. Um, And now I'm seeing people in California, which all of a sudden are racist. And I'm not talking about Adventists here. I'm talking about just the rank and file um, Californians. And it's like, where have you people been? I've never met you here. It's like they've kept it to themselves so well for so long that it really is kind of shocking to see it in places like California, which I've never, never run across it much before. And what I find really um, sad about it is because it's like, they've been under a rock for so long. These really deep prejudices have been hidden away and kept kind of tramped down by our genuinely progressing society in this area where society still has problems, but at least it's not overtly racist like it was um, 50 years ago, a hundred years ago. And now it's like the rock has been removed and all of this bile and all of this anger is being uh, poured out. And it's not just directed against, you know, one particular group. It's not just against blacks now directed against pretty much anybody who's different and whether it's um, a Mexican or whether it's a black or whether it's whatever. It's a very pervasive type of racism where it's not so much targeted anymore against one particular people group, but it's just kind of this uh, anti-unity racism where it's against everybody who's not me. And that sort of thing is... um, because it's been allowed to get out and gain a lot of uh, courage as you know, it's not really courage to be a racist, but it's like they've, they've gained a lot of traction in the last few years. And now we see how hard it's going to be to put it back underneath that rock. It's, it's going to be really difficult to um, get back to even a semblance of, of decency because we saw what happened just a week or two ago and with the Capitol when this sort of hate is now boiling out of nowhere and you're seeing it now on a national stage. How do we get that back away? How do we get rid of that? That's a very difficult thing. But to imply that Adventism is a fomenter of racism, I don't think, I don't believe that. And especially the true gospel because the only ones who are really getting involved in this that I have met are the ones who are this hybrid, this distortion of Adventism that I'm talking about with this evangelical, political, uh, gospel baggage. It's not the true gospel of, of Adventism. And in those who believe in the true original gospel of Adventism, I don't see getting involved as part of this nonsense. And so I really don't see this as part of the overcoming sin message, this we can be vindicators of God's name message that really is what makes Adventism unique and special. Those people who care about that are totally not on board with any sort of oppression or hatred of those around them. And so I don't really see this per se in those who are being true to the message. I do see it 
however, starting to come into those who are distorting the message through the evangelical influences. Now, you were born into the ministry pretty much. You traveled from church to church, and so you've seen theology develop real-time throughout the years. And before 2016, was there any suspicion about communism or socialism being (laughs) an end-time event issue? And before 2016, weren't we in agreement that the religious right was prophetically a danger to Adventism? Sure seemed like it. Um, I, Growing up in Adventism, seeing all this sort of thing, there was always a clear understanding that the religious right was not uh, our friend. It was going to be definitely a part of the process of the end times. Um, it was going to tear down um, the freedoms that we had built. Um, and we all knew all this and agreed on it because that's what Spirit of Prophecy said. And so there was no, I mean, no, none of us liked communism. None of us wanted socialism. That wasn't uh, anything part of our ideas or agenda or anything else like that. But it was certainly not the enemy which was going to uh, destroy our freedoms and create a national Sunday law and make the mark of the beast and all this sort of thing. That was not even considered. And so now all of a sudden, every speaker I hear um, seems like in the last year is about uh, communism is going to do this. And the socialism is going to do that and climate change agenda is going to be the one that does this and that and the other thing. And it's like, okay, this has all come out of nowhere. And so it's like, all right, this actually forced me to look at it and study it because I was hearing so much of this from so many different people and prominent people and, and thing, people who you've you know heard for years saying decent things. And so it's like, where are they getting their evidence? What is inspiration actually say um they all go back to you know revelation 13 and they they say this is going to happen because of this and this but we have more than revelation 13 we have the great controversy we have the spirit of prophecy and she tells us directly how it's going to happen so you know it's interesting that we're having this interview right now because i'm right at the point of finishing up a brand new presentation which we're going to film and put on youtube and that sort of thing which basically does nothing but looks at the spirit of prophecy of where the end is going to come from, who will initiate it, where is the problem going to start, not where it's going to end, because we all agree where it's going to end, where the end of all of this process is going to be a national Sunday law, and eventually the Pope um, basically dominating the world, where we have uh, one unified system of everybody must do the same thing, and the papacy is in charge of that. And that will be when we have miracles taking place and a false impersonation of Christ and all these different things. That's all the end. And we all agree on that. And whether or not climate change agenda control and whether or not some form of socialism or communism is going to be part of that end event issue, um, that's very possible. I'm not going to even you know, uh, predict that sort of thing. There can be so many permutations that could take place. We don't know exactly how it's going to look. Um, but that's the end process. That's step five out of five. We're we're not even to step one yet in terms of this process. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that has to happen first. And when we look at the beginning of the process, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how it's going to start, now, not how it's going to end. And so we look at the uh, statements, and this is what I've been going through the last few days to try and see what she really says. Um, Great Controversy, uh, 443. Ellen White writes, uh, what is the image to the beast and how is it formed? The image is made by the two-horned beast, and that's, of course, America. 
and is an image to the beast. That's referring to the papacy. So the papacy is being made an image to, but they're not the ones doing it. And I have to continue with her. It is also called an image of the beast. Then to learn what the image is like and how it is to be formed, we must study the characteristics of the beast itself, the papacy. In order for the United States to form an image of the beast, the religious power must so control the civil government that the authority of the state will also be employed by the church to accomplish her own ends. Now, I mean, that right there is very clear. It's the religious power. It's not a anti-religious power, which is what socialism and communism is going to be. That has nothing to do with what she's talking about here. That's the opposite of what she's talking about here. And so again, this is now from, uh, continuing with page uh, 443 um, to 445 of Great Controversy. Protestant churches that have followed in the steps of Rome by forming alliance with worldly powers have manifested a similar desire to restrict liberty of conscience. The wide diversity of belief in the Protestant churches is regarded by many as decisive proof that no effort to secure a forced uniformity can ever be made. The uh, ministry of the evangelical Protestant denominations. I mean, how much more do we need? It says in great controversy, evangelical Protestant denominations. It's word for word. We don't have to try and figure out how that applies. It's exactly describing what is going to do this. So to continue. The evangelical Protestant denominations is not only formed all the way up under a tremendous pressure of merely human fear, but they live and move and breathe in a state of things radically corrupt and appealing every hour to every baser element of their nature to hush up the truth and bow the knee to the power of apostasy. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions. Then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy, and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. The image of the beast represents that form of apostate Protestantism, which will be developed when the Protestant churches shall seek the aid of the civil power for the enforcement of their dogmas. So again and again and again, she says Protestant churches, churches of the Protestant faith, religious organizations of the day, Protestant America. All of these phrases that she uses are crystal clear as to that this will be the religious power of America, not a secular power. And so now we are looking at all of these different things in our world, which are very secular in their ideas. And we're saying those are going to be what brings it about. I mean, how can this be? Now, here's another quotation from Great Controversy, page 588. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. So here we have a clear statement that says the Protestants of the United States will be the ones who are initiating contact with spiritualism and with the papacy. They're not going to be dupes. They're not going to be tricked. It's not going to be spiritualism, which all of a sudden, you know, can, uh, can tricks the Protestants into doing something. It's not going to be the Romans which come over here and force an issue. 
We're not going to have the Pope stomp over to America and tell the Congress, make a Sunday law, and everybody goes, yes, sir, well, thank you, sir. That's not the way it's going to happen. The Protestants of the United States will be the ones who form the image to the beast on their own initiative because of their union with spiritualism and their union with Rome. And so this is something that we have to have clear in our minds where the threat is coming from, because this is clear Ellen White inspirational prophecy. God has spoken to us through her, and we have to pay attention to it. Now we look at another statement, Great Controversy, page 592. As the Protestant churches reject the clear scriptural arguments in defense of God's law, they will long to silence those whose faith they cannot overthrow by the Bible. Though they blind their own eyes to the fact, they are now adopting a course which will lead to the persecution of those who conscientiously refuse to do what the rest of the Christian world are doing and acknowledge the claims of the papal Sabbath. So here we are with this clear inspirational testimony who the end enemy will be. And it is clear that it's the Protestant churches, apostate Protestant churches, evangelical denominations, she says it over and over again, who are going to lead the way in forming the final events Sunday law issues. This has been our teaching for 150 years in Adventism. There's never been a misunderstanding of this. This has been since the very beginning, my entire life, everybody knew that the Protestant churches would be the ones to cause the problems. And so what have we done? We have compromised on our gospel with evangelicals. We have adopted evangelical politics. And this means now that we are now turning away our sights from the true danger of the evangelicals. And we're now turning to face with them against their enemies and facing off who they consider the threat to their existence and to their future. And we are now fighting the same enemies that the evangelicals are fighting rather than being aware that the evangelicals are the true enemy in America. And so this is something that I just am appalled by, really, because it's like we have totally thrown away inspiration in favor of a mess of porridge to compromise with an evangelical world that has no interest in being our friend. Why are we trying to be their friend? It makes no sense to me. There was an article in Liberty Magazine about, I don't know, three years ago, I forget exactly. It was called The Blind Spot. And the picture on the article was so cool that I actually cut it out of the, um, uh, the, the uh, magazine and I actually framed it and put it on my wall because it was just such a wonderful illustration. It's a picture of an anglerfish, a deep sea anglerfish. And these fish are these big, grotesque, big black fish um, with all these spiny teeth. And they have kind of a fishing lure on the top of their head, a, a long, thin rod that kind of sticks out like six, eight inches in front of their face uh, from their forehead. And at the tip of that rod is a light. They're actually able to bioluminesce and create a glowing light at the tip of this rod. And they dangle it in front of their mouth. And it's about six inches away from their mouth, so it's not uh, illuminating themselves. And it's just out there in the darkness. And this is down at the bottom of the ocean where there is no light except what animals produce uh, through bioluminescence. And in this beautiful illustration, you're facing the anglerfish. The, the anglerfish is looking right at you. And in front of the anglerfish facing toward you is this little yellow fish. And it's mesmerized by the glowing light. It's facing the light. It's so excited to see that light. That's such a beautiful light. And the anglerfish is opening up its very big, very spiny mouth behind it, ready to swallow it down and get himself a meal. 
that is for me the perfect illustration of where we are as Adventists. We're that little yellow fish. We're looking at the lure. We've gotten fooled into thinking that's the enemy. And behind us, the true enemy is about ready to swallow all of us whole. And for me, uh, that is all what we are looking at in the conservative Adventist movement. We have become the little fish looking in the wrong direction while the big fish behind us is ready to do the damage. This is the misdirection and the guile of the evangelical world. This is what they do. This is why they are so much a threat to liberty, because they do this sort of thing for a living. And so we have to choose. We have to choose between inspiration and politics. Those are not two compatible areas at all, because we are totally focusing on the wrong threat. And we are going to be completely overwhelmed by the true threat if we are not careful. And so we see all these socialism attacks and fine, I don't like socialism. I'm, I'm not in favor of communism. They do terrible things, obviously. But that is not what we have been told through inspiration is our end time scenario that is going to lead us to the final events. And again, with the climate change agenda, that's also gets into this as well, because a lot of the attacks are directed against them. Evangelicals hate climate change agenda, so therefore that's the enemy, and we, our Adventists, are going into the same route. Therefore, we're going to fight the climate change agenda because they're going to bring about the Sunday law any day now, and we're going to have a Sunday law by next year because the climate change agenda is going to take over now. It's like regardless of what the climate change agenda does or does not do, whether or not it wants to create any of these things, that's a totally different issue. But we have been told through inspiration that they will not do that because their enemies, the evangelicals, are the ones who will do it. So, again, we have to choose now between inspiration and what the political world is telling us to think in our Adventist church. So I'm active in social media. It has its dark side and its light side, advantages and disadvantages. And I've noticed Adventists, prominent pastors, People in the self-supporting work, openly putting their social media, attending political rallies of favored presidential candidate. And the question is, how involved should Seventh-day Adventists be involved in politics? Yeah, yes, that's really that's really the underlying issue of this whole discussion. Um, you're very involved in social media. I am very uninvolved in social media. I really have nothing to do with it. So I'm not able to, you know, experience that. And I'm kind of glad about it. I don't do anything on any social media platform except for my YouTube channel. And that only involves putting up messages and letting them be there. I don't get involved in any of the discussions. So fortunately, I or unfortunately, on your point of view, I've uh, stayed out of that. But I totally know what you're talking about, because this is going on everywhere. And I know exactly what you're referring to. And so it's like, again, what does my opinion count? It, it doesn't. It's irrelevant. So we need to look at inspiration because that's the only thing that really matters. So I'm going to again uh, look at the spirit of prophecy because that's where we have give, been given totally clear information of how our involvement in politics should be or should not be. Um, this is from Fundamentals of Christian Education. Um, the entire chapter is like 475 to 484. It's a fantastic chapter. Everybody should read it. It is really, really powerful. But I'm just going to read a few brief uh, quotations from it. Those who teach the Bible in our churches and in our schools are not at liberty to unite in making apparent their prejudices for or against political men or measures, but because by so doing, they stir up the minds of others, leading each to advocate his favorite theory. 
There are among those professing to believe present truth some who will thus be stirred up to express their sentiments and political preferences, so that division will be brought into the church. The Lord would have his people bury political questions. On these themes, silence is eloquence. We cannot with safety vote for political parties, for we do not know whom we are voting for. That's just so, so important to understand that. We don't know who we're voting for. Continuing, um, those teachers in our schools and in the church who distinguish themselves by their zeal in politics should be relieved of their work and responsibilities without delay. Every teacher, minister, or leader in our ranks who is stirred with a desire to ventilate his opinions on political questions should be converted by a belief in the truth or give up his work. If he does not change, he will do harm, and only harm. As a people, we are to stand under the banner of Jesus Christ. It is a mistake for you to link your interests with any political party, to cast your vote with them or for them. Those who stand as educators, as ministers, as laborers together with God in any line have no battles to fight in the political world. Their citizenship is in heaven. The Lord calls upon them to stand as a separate and peculiar people. He would have no schisms in the body of believers. Is it their work to make enemies in the political world? No, no. The questions at issue in the world are not to be the theme of our conversation. We are to call upon the world to behold an uplifted Savior. Then let there be no shade of strife among Seventh-day Adventists. And finally, we cannot labor to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty. The people of God are not to vote to place such men in office, for when they do this, they are partakers with them of the sins which they commit while in office. Those who are Christians indeed will not wear political badges, but the badge of Christ. What are we to do then? Let political questions alone. This is just so powerful. I just, I mean, I read those statements and it's like, there's your marching orders. There's your instructions. That's what we should be doing. And we're not. We're ignoring this. We're throwing this into the closet and pretending these statements don't exist. Because right now, we are totally getting on board whatever political issue we care about. And I mean, this goes both ways. And, and I mean, it can go to either direction. So I'm not wanting to attack one side or the other because there is way too much political involvement on both sides. So what I'm, you know, what I focus on is this. I have opinions, I have ideas, I have thoughts, and I have definite preferences in what I see in government, but that's not my ministry. That's not what I'm going to be going out and campaigning for, and certainly not um, promoting, um, because like she said, we do not know for whom we are voting. There is so much going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. And I'm not going to get into any conspiracy theories because that's a total waste of time. But we know that there is corruption at the highest levels. And we know that there is secret deals going on between people because that's how politics work. It's not a conspiracy to know that that's how politics are. It is total corruption, backroom deals. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. We've known that forever. And so this is not about choosing the right side, the pure side, because there are no pure sides. All of politics is dirty. It's always been dirty. And to continue to pretend that we can reform America in either direction is a joke because there's no fixing the problems through political power. There's too much confusion. When we look at a party, we see 40%, 20%, 50% of what the party is doing that we like. 
We look at the other party, we see 20%, 40%, 50% of what we like. There's no party that actually represents us. There's no possibility of saying that that party, as it is standing, is a representation of an Adventist Christian in today's world. Because if you are, if you are represented by that, then you really aren't an Adventist, because it's just not possible to do both. And so we pick a side that we like a few issues from. I like that issue and that issue and that issue. And therefore, I'm going to ignore everything else on that um, party that I don't like, because those are the most important issues. And then we vote with that. And then all of the other junk comes in with it. And we're totally fighting over things that we should have no business fighting for. And there's another aspect to this. When we fight for a cause and we are going to help them win, and let's say we succeed. Let's say all those people who, uh, who fought for Biden in this last election are now very happy because they've gotten rid of the evil Trump. And so now we're going to go forward. Um, everything's going to be great. Well, how much have we now empowered the evil that Biden is going to bring in? Because we know he's going to bring in evil because that's what every politician does. Is everything he going to be doing perfect? Well, of course not. So we're empowering the evil that he will now do. Or if it had gone the other way, if Trump had won and all the people who had succeeded in bringing Trump to his second term uh, would be very happy because we had beaten back the evil Biden, how much of Trump's evil would then we be complicit in? All of it. Because Ellen White said specifically, when we support those people who repress religious liberty, and guess what? Both sides repress religious liberty. They do it over different issues, but they both repress religious liberty. When we please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty, then we are partakers of the sins that which they commit while in office. I wouldn't want that on anybody after the last four years with the sins committed in office with this administration. And I certainly wouldn't want it with the sins committed in the next administration. So this is really an area that we just have to get out of. And there's another issue here as well. I mean, we talk about social justice, and that's really important to be able to have social justice, because that is a crucial area that America needs to do and do it in as good a way as possible. But when we are involved in that, what are we doing as well in our Adventist work? Because when we're doing that, we're focusing on that. And so is there something that we're actually taking away from what we can accomplish? There's a lot of people who are working for social justice, and I'm all for that. But is that what we as Adventists have been called to do? Is that our mission as an SDA representative of God in these final events of Earth's history where we make that our primary concern? We can be in agreement with it. We can totally support it. But that doesn't mean that needs to be our area of activism. And I have that you know, tendency as well, because I care very much for the animal creation. I've written a book about it called Animals, Ethics, and Christianity. So I do care about what happens to animals. But that's not where I'm going to be out campaigning in a political arena where I'm out there spending all of my time doing that, because that's not what I have been called to do as an Adventist representing Christ in this final generation. And when we get down to it, eventually everything starts to get messed up. And I, we've seen this over the last year. Both sides have been very much that their side's the right side. And eventually their side commits some form of violence. Um, we saw it last summer with the, with the rioting that took place along with the peaceful protests. The peaceful protests were going on just great. And then a riot would take place. And whether who's instigated doesn't matter. The point is that violence was bred out of it. And now we see within the last few weeks how violence came from the other side and attacked our capital and has been just a, a vicious, brutal mob trying to do things. 
both sides get dirty very quickly when we become involved with this sort of thing. And there is no clean hands once you're involved in this on a regular basis. We can tell people that we are opposed to this and are opposed to that, and that's fine. But once you get involved with the party politics system, we're totally going against inspirational revelation that God told us very, very clearly what we should be doing and especially what we should not be doing in the political area. The political parties are bankrupt. They have been for a long time, and there is no redeeming them in these final event history moments that we're living in, and we just have to stay out of it. Has it been difficult for both you and your father these last four years with the political divide in the church? Have friendships been affected as you stand firm against the evangelical tide, even in our prophetic message? In the last few years, we've found some difficult issues that we have uh, had to decide how we're going to relate to. Um, I'm not going to say we were innovators in any way, because I'm sure somebody else was saying something, but I didn't see a lot of it. I, I think about three years ago, um, my father and I really started to see the danger of the evangelical political influence in Adventism, and especially conservative Adventism. And we saw that it, it wasn't really being addressed. And we felt really strongly convicted that we needed to address this. And so the two of us, uh, he and I worked together to uh, write a sermon, um, which uh, was called The Trojan Horse, which basically dealt with the political involvement of Adventist uh, conservatives with the evangelical politics and how this was going to really, really cause us problems in the long run because it contains within it all their theology and that is bursting into conservative Adventism and warping it because we're taking in the political ideals of the evangelicals and that we can agree on on certain issues. We're on the same side as them on certain issues. So therefore, we've accepted that. And inside that Trojan horse is their theology and it is contaminating conservative Adventism. So we decided we felt we had to do this. We put out this sermon. Um, we, we worked quite hard on it to get it to be as fair as possible, but it, uh, to pinpoint the uh, real dangers that uh, were involved here. And um, we presented for the first time in a large uh, church um, that uh, it was its initial uh, time we gave it. Heat, my dad, was the one who gave it, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd helped him write it. And um, the reaction to that was quite remarkable. Um, I was not expecting it to be um, from the quarters that it came from, even though I knew it would have some backlash. And um, it was uh, censored. It was removed from the uh, church's website almost immediately. It never really got to see the light of day other than its first live broadcast uh, because it was seen as a threat to the political leanings of those who were involved in that sort of thing. It was part of a symposium that uh, we were involved with that weekend. A number of different speakers were giving messages. The entire weekend was reported in a prominent um, online Adventist news service uh, publication. And uh, every meeting was described and it was told what each meeting was about and what, you know, the speakers was doing, except for that sermon. That sermon was not mentioned. It was, it, it was as if it didn't exist. Uh, the other me message my dad gave was described in detail, um, but not that one. That message was just passed over without comment as if it didn't exist. And I found that remarkable that uh, here we have um, censorship 
of this in order to uh, hide the fact that that was uh, even uh, mentioned. Uh, censorship is terrible and, and the conservatives are being censored by the liberals and, and this sort of thing. Um, but here I saw directly how conservatives censor uh, anything that doesn't agree with them as well um, in just as strong a way. So that was an interesting reaction that, that uh, first appeared. We've given it since in other churches and um, it has caused a reaction. Uh, there's no question that sermon has created uh, quite a stir in certain circles because we dared to uh, say that uh, the conservative uh, political agenda is not what we as Adventists should be doing. That was interesting. There has been a certain cooling by certain people toward our ministry because of this. Uh, definitely, we've had a um, uh, not a rejection but definitely not as enthusiastic a support from certain quarters that we used to have because of this. And again, uh, we've seen this directly since we started to present this sort of, uh, uh, this sort of message. Uh, that hasn't stopped us. We're not going to quit because we see this as a very dangerous issue that must be addressed. And so we have actually gone on beyond that. We've actually put onto um, DennisPreby.com, our, uh, our main uh, website, as well as Dennis Preby Ministries, our main YouTube channel. We've put these messages on in written and uh, video format. Um, and so it's uh, the Trojan horse. We continued that on with, uh, was Desmond Ford a liberal? And we've also looked at the political issues in uh, the uh, presentation um, distractions. And so all three of those are available. We, we actually have them under a playlist on the YouTube channel called the Evangelical Menace. And so uh, we feel this is very strong. This is not going to replace our main ministry of righteousness by faith uh, by any means, but uh, this is something we have to address because it is poisoning right now many aspects of conservative Christianity. And so, uh, yeah, there has been some blowback from that um, because we have uh, said these things in a public way. There's another issue here as well, and I've noticed this for many years. Um, I, like I said, I wrote a book. Um, it was called Animals, Ethics, and Christianity. And it basically deals with our treatment of the animal world. Um, society destroys animals for a lot of reasons and um, eats them and, and uses them for fun, for, for clothing, for all sorts of different ways. We do things that are really terrible to animals. And so what is our reaction as Adventists, as Christians? What should be our responsibility to care or not care about the animal world? And how that, does that affect our sanctification? How does that affect our walk with Christ? And so I wrote this book and I put it out in presentations, both live and in uh, you know, various different DVD forms. Um, and I've been doing that since, like I said, 1999. That was actually the first sermon I ever gave uh, was this sort of thing. And so I've been presenting this for over 20 years now. There has definitely been a refusal to acknowledge this as important among conservative Adventists. And so, you know, I've found this for many years and for a long time, I really wondered why, because it's in the Bible, it's in the spirit of prophecy. These are clear statements. These are clear principles. And so why isn't this important um, to us as conservative Adventists? And I finally figured it out as I began to see these trends developing, because it's not important to evangelicals. They are actually opposed very vigorously to protecting animals from abuse. They have, that is one of their issues that they consider to be part of the liberal left, part of the atheistic uh, fringe, whatever, that they consider to be their enemy. And so they consider any protection of animals to be something that uh, they do not want any part of. 
And they've made that clear with their politics and with their theology and everything else. And so they don't like it. And so Adventists are not liking it either. And so I find that very um, sad because, you know, opposition to cruelty to adults and cruelty to babies and cruelty to animals is something that really should represent what Christianity stands for. We should have nothing to do with causing cruelty to others that is in any way avoidable. And that should be part of what we are as Christians representing Christ's character, because that's really what it's all about. We have to look at how would Christ want us to act in these sorts of situations. And when we look at that, we should always care about all people. We should care about babies. We should care about animals. And evangelicals have decided that they do care about babies, but they don't care about animals. And so therefore, we as conservative Adventists are starting to say that we care about babies, but not about animals. And so again, it becomes this dichotomy where we're picking issues based not on whether or not they're valid or not, but whether or not they're politically powerful amongst the evangelicals and have something relevant to them. And so I'm just going to read from one more passage of Ellen White here, because for me, again, this is all that matters. What does Ellen White say? Not what a political party says, not what an evangelical says, but what does the Bible and spirit of prophecy say? And so this is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 442 to 443. Balaam had given evidence of the spirit that controlled him by his treatment of his beast. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Few realize, as they should, the sinfulness of abusing animals or leaving them to suffer from neglect. He who created man made the lower animals also, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The animals were created to serve man, but he has no right to cause them pain by harsh treatment or cruel exaction. It is because of man's sin that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together. Suffering and death were thus entailed, not only upon the human race, but upon the animals. Surely, then, it becomes man to seek to lighten, instead of increasing the weight of suffering which his transgression has brought upon God's creatures. He who will abuse animals because he has them in his power is both a coward and a tyrant. A disposition to cause pain, whether to our fellow men or to the brute creation, is satanic. Many do not realize that their cruelty will ever be known because the poor dumb animals cannot reveal it. But could the eyes of these men be opened, as were those of Balaam, they would see an angel of God standing as a witness to testify against them in the courts above. A record goes up to heaven, and a day is coming when judgment will be pronounced against those who abuse God's creatures. So for me, that's the final answer on these sorts of things. We have to oppose cruelty to people and to babies, and to animals. That is what makes us Christian. That's what makes us Christ's representatives. That is how Christ's character can be revealed in us. And so, yeah, there has been a, my whole life, there's been a resistance to this issue. Um, and now we're seeing it again develop deeper with uh, resistance to the uh, my father's issues as well. So again, it's unfortunate, but a, a reality of the times we're living in. Final question. What is the solution to the political divide that we have in the church right now? Yeah, here's the thing. We have to back away. That's really the bottom line issue. We have to back away and just not be so involved because right now it is fomenting so much anger and strife and contention that that's really, for me, 
just it's blinding us to everything else. We're fighting over all these issues and this you're not on the right side of things and you're not my friend anymore and all this kind of stuff is dividing us. And when we look back to the founders of Adventism, we actually find this sort of rejection of politics. We actually see that the ones who founded Adventism saw the dangers to it. Back in um, 1884, uh, Uriah Smith said, there is nothing in either nomination, this was during a presidential election, there is nothing in either nomination to excite enthusiasm in the mind of any person who regards purity and principle above party success and political spoils. The triumph of the principles involved in the election of either candidate will be a disgrace and misfortune. Um, we have another one saying that uh, in 1856, one would not want to vote for a bad man, and politics was so crooked that to put a good man in office would only corrupt him. Um, Uriah Smith said in 1872 that the uh, spirit of the campaign would be the sure death of spirituality. Seventh-day Adventists can spend their time to better advantage. Let the dead bury their dead. Keep out of it. I love that phrasing. Let the dead bury their dead. Um, in 1872, if he also said uh, that if he does vote, do so quietly and then go about his business without plunging into the spirit and heat and strife of the campaign. Um, and then we go back to James White in 1860, and I find this remarkable. 1860 was the election that basically preceded the Civil War. This was the election between Lincoln and the other two candidates. And James White at that time said that uh, he wouldn't be voting. He wouldn't recommend anybody voting. He wouldn't condemn those who did vote. Uh, and he trusted that they would not condemn him if he did not vote. And so, I mean, you know, everybody looks back, Abraham Lincoln is the greatest president ever, and he was. But here we have in 1860, Adventists who didn't see him as a friend, because at that point, he really wasn't. He basically was a guy who was better than the next guy. He was the lesser of two evils, but he wasn't an abolitionist. He wasn't somebody who was going to come in and stop slavery and all this sort of thing, even though he didn't like it himself. So why should we as an abolitionist vote for him? That was basically James White's position. There's no really good candidate to vote for. So again, even with somebody like that, I, there's no such thing as the lesser of two evils. There's evil and evil. Whether or not one is greater than the other really doesn't make any difference. Now we have Ellen White's testimony. This is in uh, Second Selected Messages, page 337. Keep your voting to yourself. Do not feel it your duty to urge everyone to do as you do. And so it's like we need to vote for issues. And personally, I always feel like uh, the ballots are fun and crucial to vote for because they're really practical. They, they deal with something on the ground that you can actually have an influence in. So I actually have voted since I've become eligible to vote in every single election possible on every single ballot measure possible, even the boring ones. I, I, I always vote for whatever because I do study the issues and I want to vote. But to vote for parties, and that's basically everyone you're dealing with, is part of the party politic system, which is corrupt. I won't do it. And I never have. I have never sing voted for a single president in my entire life. And I would, if I ever was going to do so, I would do so now when so much is at stake. But it's like, no, I'm not going to be voting for something that I know is not going to do anything any good for me in the long run of, as being an Adventist. So I don't deal with this at all. So we just have to back away. We just have to step away from this and, and deal with these things on a more objective basis and not a personal, the end of the universe, I'm going to uh, lose everything if I lose this political campaign. 
which is what I'm seeing these days on both sides of the fence. And it's just, we've got to take a step back. What really matters, and this is the bottom line, and this is what I'm gonna end with, is that what really matters is heart preparation. It doesn't matter what's happening in Washington, D.C., or in the Vatican, or in any of the power structures of the world. That's not what is going to bring about the end time. It's when God's people are ready. We determine that. And if we continue to fight and be angry about petty issues, our hearts will not be ready. We need a revival of our own hearts, not pointing fingers at the bad guys, but actually pointing the finger back to ourselves so that we can look inside and say, this is holding back the second coming. It's not going to be about the bad guys filling up the cup of iniquity in Washington, D.C. That's been full for a very, very long time. It just needs one drop to spill it over the top. And that's not going to be by Satan doing something, causing one more evil act, because that makes Satan responsible for bringing about the second coming. It's never been about Satan doing something. It's never been about the Pope doing something. It's always been what we as a people are going to say yes or no to Jesus Christ in our lives. And we need to witness to those around us. We need to share our faith. We need to vindicate God's name by saying, you know what? God's way is the best way, and I'm going to let him work in my life. And when God says that he can have a final people that are ready for the second coming, I am going to let him do that in my life and let his name be vindicated. And that will be what brings about the final events. We're going to be in a holding pattern forever until we finally let God work in our lives. And it's not about casting a vote or campaigning in a cause. It's about turning inward and saying, you know what, God, this is still in here and I need it out. Please take it out of my heart. And when we stand for the truth of the gospel and we stand and care for the helpless and those around us which are suffering and we do what we can in our sphere to relieve suffering and not inflict it upon those that are helpless around us, whatever those may be, that is when we can actually be God's people and not accomplishing something temporary, which really won't be an accomplishment at all. And that for me is what all this comes down to. How we let God work in our lives is the only thing that matters. And everything else will be continuing to divide us and continuing to rupture us and make us more angry and bitter about all of these different things. And for me, let's just take a look at what God's way is and focus that instead of looking out there at the evil in the world. Brother Matthew, thank you so much for gracing us in this podcast. It's been definitely a blessing, and you're welcome back anytime. That would be great. Can you say a closing word of prayer for us? Sure. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to kind of think through these issues and look at what we have become as a people. And what you want us to be as a people and what we have the opportunity to be. Help us to be that shining light for those around us so that we can have our witness pure and not tainted with what is going on in the world. And help us to live our lives so that each day is really one step closer to heaven and not just a putting off of heaven because we just don't take the time. Give us the strength and the courage and the power we need to overcome those sins in our life which are delaying your second coming longer than you ever wanted it to be. And as we go forward, help us to always have our hand in yours so that what you want of us is what we want as well. In Jesus' name, amen.